there is no doubt. Um, I think this vaccine is probably not going to be for sissies. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the November 20th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This is the December 9th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objectives are discuss who is likely to be eligible for COVID-19 vaccine and discuss the safety of the mRNA vaccine based on current data. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you for answering questions for us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And uh, we'll also finish up with a little bit of information about the new vaccine uh, that's in front of the Food and Drug Administration this week here uh, in December. Okay, great. Thank you. Our first question is, can someone who has recovered from COVID-19 be a carrier of the virus later? Yeah, so this is a question that's on many minds that, uh, for example, if you're immunized or even if you had uh, the coronavirus infection, if you were exposed to somebody who has it, would you actually carry the virus and transmit it to someone else? We don't really know this answer, but I'll mention a couple of items uh, that may be of interest. First, there have been rare reports of reinfection that's been very robustly documented by uh, a different uh, genetic profile for infections, but we really don't know how often this happens. But I think uh, the vast majority of people feel this is an extremely rare occurrence, at least within the first six or maybe 12 months of infection as we head into almost the one-year one mark since the first cases of COVID-19 were described. The second is the problem with viral carriage. Uh, early on, there was suggestions that you had to wait until you had a negative molecular test from a nasopharyngeal swab to be negative, and therefore then you weren't infectious. But what we've since learned is that people can carry viral remnants for many weeks or even months, up to 100 days or more in some very limited circumstances. And these people are not infectious. And this has been documented in a number of studies, but perhaps most elegantly uh, by public health contact tracing over a number of weeks uh, in South Korea, where people who had uh, positive viral swabs for many weeks did not seem to transmit it within the household. The last piece regarding the vaccines, especially with the two that are in front of the Food and Drug Administration now, the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, mRNA vaccine and the Moderna 
mRNA vaccine. We don't have any information on whether uh, someone that's uh, responsive to immunization still can carry the virus. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the chimpanzee adenovirus vector, uh, there is information that it probably decreases carriage to some degree, but uh, I think we're not going to see that vaccine quite as early as originally promised. This particular trial, people were routinely swabbed looking for virus, but still, even then, we're not sure if people are infectious. We don't know if that virus is actually capable of infecting or if it's somehow already neutralized because of the uh, immunization. So I think the risks are probably low, but there's certainly paradigms with influenza where on occasion, even though people are immunized and have some immunity, uh, you can still harbor the virus and potentially transmit. Okay, thank you. And our next learner asks, can you please explain a bit about isolation and quarantine and what the new recommendations are? Sure. So for people that have COVID-19, it's, it's easy and nothing's changed. Uh, people should self-isolate for at least 10 days and have resolution of symptoms for at least 24 hours if you're not profoundly immunosuppressed or very sick and hospitalized, for example. Now, the quarantine is a little different, and there have been some nuances to that that I think uh, would be important to go over. First, let's review who uh, counts as a close contact. So this is if you've spent 15 minutes within six feet of someone who ended up developing COVID-19. And others are making sense if you're in uh, taking care of somebody in a home who someone has COVID-19, direct physical contact, and so on and so forth. So that's the close contact definition. If that's true, you're supposed to quarantine. And the idea is you're supposed to stay there for 14 days. You don't go out of the house. Um, you try not to interact with anyone else at home. And you monitor for any signs or symptoms of the infection that might develop. And especially, you want to stay away from people who are at high risk for COVID-19 complications. Now, the 14 days has been onerous. Often, the sense is many people don't comply with the entire time frame. So I think there was some debate at the Centers for Disease Control whether we stick with the 14 days or have other options hoping to get better compliance rather than people are saying, 14 days, forget it. I'm not going to do it at all. So the updated recent recommendations still depend on your local or state health department. So you're supposed to still look for that guidance, but uh, does reflect what we talked about, the idea that 14 days is a long time and people may not do it. But the CDC remains suggesting that the 14-day approach is really the it, what should be done. What's new is uh, they're saying, okay, we know that probably less than 10% of people develop COVID-19 after day 10. So maybe we can just release it day 10 without testing and we're not missing many people. You might even get that lower by doing testing. So if you test and they give a window of between five and seven days and you have a negative result, you can be released. Now, you may have to wait for that test result, especially if you don't have a rapid antigen test, but these provide some uh, potential ways that shorten the duration of the quarantine. 
Okay, great, thank you. And the next question is, are we still supposed to be wiping grocery packages and letting mail sit for days? Well, um, I, I would have to say that, you know, if you're very conservative, you'll you'll still do those things. But typically, it seems that these are very low-risk objects in terms of transmission and don't account for very much at all. This would be especially true of porous materials. I, I think if you practice good hand hygiene and don't touch your nose or mouth or use hand uh, washing or any of the alcohol products, that you'll probably be fine despite handling grocery items and mail. So that's my personal recommendations. And I, I think uh, early on, there was a lot of attention to this because people wanted to be as careful as possible. But this is not the main, by any stretch, uh, a way that the vast majority of people are contracting the virus. Okay, thank you. Um, Dr. Allwater, how does an mRNA vaccine actually work? Yeah, so a message RNA vaccine, if you think of it, it's, it's, it's really like a mini virus. So instead of having all the components of a virus so the virus can make itself, you're only getting a part of it uh, and it doesn't replicate, which is important. So I think although this is a brand new platform, this is essentially what a regular virus does, except they insert more genes than just the one gene that is going to code for the spike protein, the, uh, the protein that binds to cell receptors of the coronavirus. So I just have an example here, Faith, of the message RNA vaccine that right now is uh, the first one to go in front of the Food and Drug Administration. That's the German BioNTech vaccine that's been co-developed now with Pfizer in clinical trials. And it's, it's like a virus, but even simpler. So all it is are nucleosides that uh, help encode or instruct the host cell to translate the spike protein that you see here. That's it. And it's surrounded by lipid nanoparticles that sort of uh, replicate uh, a bit what a virus might have, except there's no clear docking mechanism. And what you can see on the right hand of the slide is that these lipid nanoparticles can not attach, but sort of meld in with the membrane of cells. It then gets processed through some organelles such as the endosome. You then make uh, additional message RNA uh, here on the right-hand side of that rightmost slide and produce the antigen of interest that's then extruded out of the cell and or presented by so-called major histocompatibility complexes presented to antigen-presenting cells and getting especially B-cell responses and perhaps some T-cell responses too. So um, I, I think this is less fraught with concerns about it being very new and novel, because this is uh, really what a, a virus does to a large degree. Okay, and what adverse reactions to the vaccine have been reported? So I'll just focus at the moment on what we know from the uh, Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine. Uh, but first, I'd like to just uh, discuss a little bit about the efficacy. And this is from the Food and Drug Administration uh, briefing document that the companies provided. 
And this is what's been reported initially by press release earlier. And you can see that the vaccine has been highly effective, 95%, perhaps a bit higher in uh, younger people than uh, people over 55, but still an extraordinarily impressive uh, protection response. Uh, and that is at least a week after the second uh, vaccine dose. Uh, this graphic, I think, helps uh, portray really the amazing uh, efficacy of this mRNA vaccine. So the red line represents the placebo arm, and you can see the steady rise of the number of COVID-19 cases. However, even after the first dose, just perhaps 10 days afterwards, you can see the divergence with the blue line and the marked decrease in the number of cases that uh, doesn't really seem to essentially need a second vaccine booster, but that second immunization is thought to be important for the durability, the longevity, as it were, of the vaccine, which we'll find out more about, of course, in the ensuing months. So overall, really just spectacular results. Now, in terms of side effects, there is no doubt, um, I think this vaccine is probably not going to be for sissies. Local uh, reactions are very common, especially higher in the second dose and in, in younger patients, along with lots of other side effects that were higher than placebo. Uh, but most of them uh, resolve after a day or two. Uh, and importantly, in terms of serious adverse reactions, there really were no fatality rates that seemed worrisome, and there were no non-fatal severe adverse reactions that seemed to be any different between vaccine and placebo. So certainly this vaccine engenders, I think, some sort of immunological reactions. I, I think that's probably uh, without a doubt, uh, a, a potential downside, but I think the upside of its significant efficacy really will carry the day. Uh, you can give an idea here. They uh, have a little graphic, uh, except for local site reactions, how vaccines stacked up to placebo, especially in the younger uh, cohort who uh, typically had a bit more immunogenicity um, and uh, pretty much uh, all these uh, were higher as you can see, compared to placebo. Okay, thank you. And if an individual already had COVID-19, should they get the vaccine when it's available? We will have to wait and see on this particular question what uh, official guidance may come out. There are concerns that some people don't develop very high antibody levels after COVID-19 infection or that they are are waning quickly, I should point out. This is really the natural occurrence of most viral infections that you can get very high titers that then decline. But the real question is, you know, whether you're susceptible to the infection. I think you'll find that people will say, most of the recommendations will say to go ahead and get the vaccine since we have some uncertainty about a natural infection. That being said, personally, if I had COVID-19, I, I probably wouldn't hurry and get a immunization 
straight away or especially when vaccine supply is limited, I would give that to others since you probably have protective immunity for months, if not a year or more. So I think there's time until we can sort through this a bit better. I don't think there's a downside, but we'll be accumulating evidence, obviously, because I think people will uh, be immunized who have previously had COVID-19 and we'll have uh, more information over time on this particular aspect. Thank you. And finally, will there be segments of the population who cannot get the vaccine because of certain allergies or conditions? Well, I'm only speaking about the message RNA vaccine. It, it may not be helpful, of course, in people with completely depleted immune systems because you wouldn't give a vaccine or expect much of a response in, in people that might have aplastic anemia, for example, or uh, no white blood cells. But uh, generally, um, it, we always say if someone has a hypersensitivity reaction to a vaccine component, we want to be wary or not give it, especially if they develop anaphylaxis or something of that nature. But I will tell you, none of those were reported in vac the vaccine trial, which was upwards of 40,000 patients. Now, uh, there's been news reports just over the past day from the United Kingdom where this vaccine is being given to the general population. And there were uh, two uh, reports of people having uh, problems with the first dose of the vaccine. Uh, both of those uh, people were said to have carried EpiPens generally because they have high uh, rates of allergic reactions. So I believe there is some advice that's being given to people that are highly allergic and may uh, carry EpiPens for whatever reason and so on that they may want to avoid this particular vaccine until we learn more. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith, and I uh, hope everyone stays safe and well, and uh, certainly there'll be more news in the forthcoming weeks about the vaccine rollouts that will be occurring. So uh, despite the rather grim news uh, from most of our public health departments, I think uh, this, this is something that we're all looking forward to and uh, hopefully uh, trying to answer questions so people feel comfortable getting vaccines.